Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad you had you with us to explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My lift, I cease pollution. Those dirty fuels are burning. The Earth's whole climate's churning. Clean energy solution. My ride, I scans the bill. Fossil fuels are cheap. Wind and solar too steep. Drill, baby, drill. Predefined, misaligned, polarized division. Shuttered mind, worse than blind. 2020. Well, we're back, Dave. Couple weeks, you were down and out. Parks family down and out with COVID. So glad to see that uh, or hear that everyone's doing much better. Uh, although you're right in the middle of uh, brutal chilly temperatures in New York, huh? Yeah, we are. We've uh, we had a little snow and uh, but the last couple of days going to the train, it was six degrees on Monday and seven degrees uh, yesterday on Tuesday. So today it's a little warmer, but I'm working from home. So um, they may get a chance to get some fresh air and, and not feel the need to to wear the mask. Forget about COVID, but just to keep your face warm. You know, it's, uh, it's that, that time of year where you need everything covered if you're going to make it. That's actually, yeah, I didn't even think about that. That option, right? You could wear that face mask type of type of deal in that cold weather. Yeah. Or do they make you wear like a a mask over that and like an N95 over like the thing we used to wear when we were younger. <laughs> the, the the ski mask plus the N95. Yes. Yeah. Is it is that what they do, or can you just get get away with the ski mask? No, I think uh, officially you can do the ski mask, but um, you okay. know the N95 is is recommended uh, for somebody who's coming out of isolation like myself. So okay, all right. All right, you were bundled up, but um, also big news. Brady retired finally yesterday. It was a three and a half day, almost retirement, retirement. Yeah, it was funny. ESPN thought they were breaking news. And then Brady comes back and says, well, no, I'm still deciding. Uh, but then I guess they ended up okay because he retired. So they can they can roll out all those stories that they published. Yeah, four days early. But um, yeah, you know, 22 years. What a, what a run. Yeah, yeah. Great, great runs. Um Seven Super Bowl wins, man, just a, just amazing. So you won the Super Bowl once out of every three years, and what did he play in eleven of them? I think so. I mean, he played ten, in, yeah, yeah, oh, ten. Okay, so really one every other year. That's that's amazing, and uh, yeah. But uh, what a what a great week just overall. Um, that divisional playoff round was amazing. Um, our picks weren't that amazing, but <laughs> picks were terrible. The, yeah, our picks were terrible. But I think that um, you could have had one play go uh, the other way and, you know, we could have gone a hundred percent, but I uh, yeah, but I mean, I just never seen a weekend like that. That's my favorite weekend in sports because of those four games yeah, and what they mean. And that, that definitely came true. And we, we got to right before the bills chiefs and uh, Katie said, are there any more games? I'm like, yeah, oh, the big game is coming up here. And uh, we had already had three decided by a field goal at the end. And I said, well, right. this possibly can't be as good as the other three. And sure enough, it was. Yeah, better, better yet. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was an amazing contrast because the weekend before wild card, every game was a blowout. And then you yeah. have these these four just incredible games that all go down to the wire. And now this week, you know, best week of the football season, we got the Pro Bowl coming up. So, of course, we're going to do a big Pro Bowl preview um, over the course of the show today. You know, we'll 
de-emphasize Aristotle because you just got to make sure you break down the the blue versus the red. And, um, oh, you know, is Brady going to play? You know, that would be a, a great way to go out. Okay. You know, final final game, be Pro Bowl. Lamest game of the year, right? I, I think, yeah. you know, at least the, you know, the hockey players play. The basketball players play for the last, I think, three minutes of the fourth quarter or right. overtime. Right. Uh, but um, NFL Pro Bowl in Las Vegas, you know, no one really plays. So there's, uh, yeah, the, the game that is meaningless. Yeah. And that you don't really want your players playing in if you really care about them because, you know, who right. wants to lose a great player for the next season on an ACL sprain or Achilles or whatever yeah. it would be. So. Remember that, that Patriots running back? Years ago, that was playing uh, John Stevens, football right? in the sands, and was John Stevens, I think, I don't know, lost maybe. his whole career. I mean, he almost lost his leg. It was crazy yeah. injury, and, and never, never played again. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> let's let's transition to Aristotle. So we're back in book four of the Politics, looking at chapters two through four today, Dave. Yeah. So the subject of book four, book five of the Politics is how regimes change, and. Um, the idea that he takes up in this uh, chapters two through four is one that he started out with uh, in chapter one, which is um, there are going to be different types of revolutions. They're not going to be just one type of revolution or one type of pattern to revolution, as was suggested by uh, Plato uh, in the Republic. But there are particular reasons why uh, revolutions come into being. So he's going to give some general, some general comments at the beginning of his commentary in part two, and then he's going to get into some of the particular reasons why there are revolutions. So question that he phrases, how dissensions and political revolutions arise? We need to understand the beginnings and causes of them, which affect all constitutions uh, generally. So what's the feeling of a revolution? What's the motive or what are the motives of those who make revolutions? And how do these political disturbances and quarrels arise? So what's the feeling behind it? What are the motives of the people engaged in it? And how do these things happen? Like how, how, what do they look like when they're, they're starting out? So he answers the, the first question, why they happen by turning back to part one of book five, writing the universal and chief cause of this revolutionary feeling has been already mentioned, the desire of equality. When men think that they are equal to others who have more than themselves, or again, the desire of inequality and superiority, when conceiving themselves to be superior, they think that they have not more, but the same or less than their inferiors, pretensions which may and may not be just. In some, inferiors revolt in order that they may be equal, and equals that they may be superior. Such is the state of mind which creates revolutions. So this, this question of whether or not equality is being appropriated in the right way affects all different types of people, Matt, uh, from the oligarch to the Democrat, to the person on the right, to the person on the left, uh, to the person in a quarrel uh, with their neighbor. We tend to define uniformly justice as equality, but we disagree with one another as to what equality is and whether or not it's being applied in a particular case. It's pretty clear if we think about our own experience, right, that when we feel insulted, when we feel anger, 
Uh, it's often because we think that our equality is, is being denied in some way, right? We may not use those exact words, but, but we're being treated unfairly. We're being, um, you know, spoken down to, or someone's treating us in a way that, that feels like they're slighting us. And, and sometimes it's just pride and there's really not a problem there, right? It's, it's really the problem is me responding to what's a very reasonable claim by another person. And, you know, my pride has just been wounded by that. And so I really don't have a just cause for complaint, but nevertheless, I can still be angry. And of course, this is a key point that Aristotle's making here, that, that the causes of revolution are not all just causes. There are, there are revolutions that, that arise out of, out of pride, uh, that arise out of other uh, vicious motives. There are others that arise from good motives, where, where there's a genuine denial of, of a genuine equality, and, and, it's, and it's right for some adjustment to be made. I was just teaching on uh, the run-up to the American Revolution yesterday, and one of the things that you see is, is just this debate. Right? The, the, the policy of Britain, by and large, is to treat Americans as second-class citizens, as, as means to their ends. And so you look at, for example, the, the navigation acts of the period, and they want to monopolize American trade. They want to put lots of extra rules on goods that are traveling from the American colonies to Europe. You can't just ship them anywhere. They have to go to England. They have to benefit the mother country. And there's special taxes associated with that and other regulations and rules. And, and the Americans go back to their original colonial charters they go back to their original experience in coming to America and they say, no, we're, we're equal British subjects. Well, why should we be treated as, as those that are supposed to just feather the nest of the mother country? We, we want to be treated with equality. We, we don't have to be given any special privileges, but, but don't make us follow rules that you're not willing to follow or, or pay taxes that you're not willing to pay. And so, so it's really this, this, this push and pull around equality that's at the center and, and not, not, you know, just the all men are created equal equality, right? Sort of the, the metaphysical question, but just the felt sense of inequality, of, of being treated as, as somebody who's, who's not worthy of the same respect if I had been living in London or Manchester or Liverpool when I'm living in Boston or New York City. Yeah, so what you're saying, Matt, is that there are, there are right motives and wrong motives for revolution. doesn't mean to say that revolution is always justified because of a right motive, but there's a clear way of seeing what's going on in any particular case that someone has stolen from you or taken something from you that, okay, well, you, you want to write that you want to, um, you want to get to a more equitable situation with them, or someone has dishonored you, uh, that they, these things, someone can be dishonorable uh, to you. But I think that uh, there's another state of mind. That's a wrong motive where you're coming at any situation whatsoever from a, a point of view where you just think that you're going to be wronged, right? So this is the, the person who acts at, at all times out of insolence, out of all times um, out of a, a position of fear, out of all times at a position that they should be more predominant than another, they should have a superior status than another, or just contemptuous of an, another. So you can have a personality type that is revolutionary and that does um, great harm uh, to others, or you can kind of see, you know, that, okay, oftentimes there could be a reason for revolution. So here I go back to the Declaration of Independence and you go back through the, the lists of reasons for that declaration, there are gonna be particular examples that, that Jefferson states over and over again, right? And he's drawing back uh, to what Locke says in the second treatise where 
you know, it's not going to be one trifle here or there that happens, but it's going to be a continuous set of examples of, of usurpations, et cetera, that may warrant revolution. So um, it, it, it kind of, I, I think it, it guards us against revolution for the sake of revolution. And, and it kind of, it asks us to kind of check, why are we wanting revolution? I, I think this would be true of, of regime change, but true of anything. You could be in a, a workplace setting and say, I just can't stand this anymore. And if your knee-jerk reaction is, this person's got to go, this has got to change, rather than kind of taking a step back and asking, you know, humbly, okay, am I looking at this in the correct way? You know, is, is this something, right, that, that needs immediate change? Or, or can there be some way to respond uh, to the problem uh, that, that leads to a more peaceful um, solution? But, you know, it, it, this, is, this is good uh, a good lesson for us all. You know, experientially, I mean, most of us kind of have these revolutionary impulses, but we're not really revolutionaries, right? We, you know, we, we recognize the, the price of revolution and it takes a long train of abuses, you know, to, 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 to move us in that direction where we're really going to kind of take that dramatic action, quit the job or fire the person or, or, you know, take up the, the musket if you're back in 1775. That, that's not the first thing you do. Right? It, it, it takes a while to get you there. There's some people that by personality might get there quickly, right? There, there's a Sam Adams. There's also a John Adams and, and you know, some more deliberate, uh, thoughtful who, who's going to be persuaded and, and brought around by, by reason to a conclusion that, yeah, there really is nothing else to do besides resist British government in this particular case. Yeah. I get, so I guess you, when you, when you say that there, there really is a tendency perhaps on the other side to not want to be revolutionary, right. To, to want balance and order and to not want to disrupt the peace, even if the peace is unjust, right. Uh, and Martin Luther King Jr. At his best, right. And you think here a letter from a Birmingham jail was calling on people, right. To see the injustice for what it was, right. And, and to respond, right. In civil disobedience to that injustice. So you can get in a, a place where you're like, well, I'm, I'm not going to ruffle anyone's feathers. I don't right. want to rock the boat where, you know, you're, you ought to have eyes that see that something is wrong and you ought to want to act upon it. So it's, it's, it's yeah. a, not, not an easy equation, uh, but it, it, there is a kind of a right seeing that, that goes into it uh, based upon, you know, the, the standard of what is actually taking place. Yeah, right. Those it's, moderates it's, that the king was criticizing in the in the letter, right? They're, they're they're more dangerous in some ways than those that are hardened against him. Exactly, exactly. So in part three of book five, he goes in, and I think this is just important. He goes into particular examples of when these motives of gain, honor, insolence, and fear uh, have have shown themselves, and I and I think it, it it says something to us who we're trying to understand this problem from an Aristotelian lens, and that is that the particular cases of history are important, that, that we're just not theorizing about what revolution is, but we've had examples, right, of how human beings have treated one another in improper ways, and that there's a wisdom and a discernment that can come from looking at particular historical examples. I mean, you, I mean, you think you know, no further than the Bible as well, right, where you have particular examples of people doing unjust things to one another, sinning against one another, et cetera. And there's so much to learn and gain from, uh, from reviewing uh, those particular cases, from reviewing history and, and learning uh, from history. And you know, this made me think of um, Hamilton's uh, famous 
uh, writing on division uh, between uh, nations uh, when applied to the American um, Confederacy uh, in, in 1787, 1788. And he says, a man must be far gone in utopian speculations who can seriously doubt that if these states, you know, the colonies now made states, should either be wholly disunited or only united in partial confederacies, the subdivisions into which they might be thrown would have been frequent and violent contests with each other. And here are the key line. To presume a want of motives for such contests as an argument against their existence would be to forget that men are ambitious, vindictive, and rapacious. To look for a continuation of harmony between a number of independent, unconnected sovereignties in the same neighborhood would be to disregard the uniform course of human events and to set at defiance the accumulated experience of ages. Right. So Aristotle in book five is trying to gather together the accumulated experience of, of his age and put it into kind of a this is what revolution is. And it's funny, he says the same thing there that Hamilton says in Federalist Six. The causes of hostility among nations are innumerable. There are some which have a general and almost constant operation upon the collective bodies of society. Of this description are the love of power or the desire of preeminence and dominion, the jealousy of power or the desire of equality and safety. This is right out of Aristotle's playbook. I mean, you, Hamilton channeling Aristotle yeah. says, let's do away with utopian speculation and kind of see the thing as it is and how it's played out and how it's tied back to our human anthropology, our tendency not to see things correctly, but to have a distorted view of what's going on in front of us. Yeah, it's a great analysis of the prevailing tendencies of the powerful and the weak, right? The powerful want preeminence and dominion. The weak are jealous of power, want equality and safety. And so you always have uh, the powerful and the weak, and the powerful and the weak always have these tendencies that derived from their human nature. And so he goes on to catalog, just as you're saying, ancient examples, modern examples, American examples, you know, Shays Rebellion is, is mentioned in this, in this essay. So, you know, he starts with the ancient world and kind of leads you through this historical account. Then you get some European cases, and then it comes right to your own back door and, and realize, okay, so we're not actually different. This is one of the interesting observations of the early Federalist essays. Uh, Americans are not exceptional when it comes to their basic human nature. Uh, they will give cause and receive cause for war like everybody else. Uh, they too will be rapacious and vindictive and ambitious, and they will desire equality when they're weak. They will desire dominion when they're strong. And so, you know, all, all these historical examples lead to this conclusion that you better maintain the union lest you end up with these rival confederacies fighting each other, just like France and Britain fight each other back in Europe. And, and so just as Aristotle does, Hamilton warns us um, to be on the lookout for those causes of, of revolution and to keep your eyes open to the early signs that might suggest danger ahead. Yeah, and that's uh, really where Aristotle goes in, in chapter four of uh, book five. What's the lesson here? What, what can we learn and how can we be on our guard, as, as Aristotle will write, against the beginnings of such evils? And he says, the, uh, the, he, he references the proverb, well begun is half done, right? So if you can see something at its, its beginning, right, then you're in a pretty good position to kind of, if you can, 
right um, note it, the, the problems that are come thereafter, you, you might be able to do something about them. And then there are three other lessons I think that he draws from this, that you can have a situation, uh, regardless of the form of government that's in place, where the magistrates, the, the officers, want to increase their power or renown. Whenever you kind of see any type of, of government in which the office holder is trying to empower themselves, be on the lookout because this could produce revolution uh, soon enough. Third lesson, when the opposite parties are equally balanced, the rich against the poor, and there's no middle class, you better beware, right? Because there's going to be a power struggle between those two groups. So um, if there's one group that's manifestly superior, Aristotle writes, there's not much of a fear there. But if you have two parties and no middle, no center that are up against one another, beware because revolution may be around the corner. And then a third thing, excuse me, the fourth thing that he tells us here as a lesson is how revolutions are brought into being. He says they're affected either by force Right, where you just kind of use the power that you have into forcing the other to bend around your will or fraud in uh, deception that you can deceive a people uh, into, into revolution, or you might even be able to persuade them at first, but the end game is deception so that they uh, revolt. So uh, the end of this discussion is revolution is going to happen. It's going to happen because of human nature that happens in this way, the best thing that, that the statesman can do is be on the lookout for it uh, so as to prevent it or to channel it. And I, you know, I, you mentioned, you know, Burke's address, you know, earlier uh, in our conversation on this, it kind of, it, it speaks right to uh, the hope, right? That if you are a statesman, it's not that you're denying that injustice can be done, but you're trying to respond to injustice in a way where you, you admit to the reality of the injustice and you try to remedy uh, that injustice on the front end. So you're not automatically pointing to the revolutionary and saying, you don't have a point to make, right? You're just trying to be a rabble rouser. You're just, you're just trying to cause an insurrection. You say, well, you know, why is this group, uh, why is this element within society wanting to rebel? Is there anything to that which they're trying to argue? And there might there be anything for me to remedy or reconcile there in kind of admitting some truth uh, to whatever uh, they're suggesting. Yeah, there's a, a magnanimity in statesmanship that's really required here. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking about the applications of this, and there's probably a lot different directions we can go. You, you mentioned what happens when you have two parties that are evenly divided. Uh, that feels very familiar uh, over the last really 20 years. Think about how close our presidential elections have been and the back and forth, who controls Congress, and, and you see the sense of the high stakes that goes along with that. But I think, you know, if there's anything that seems to be inspiring revolutionary feeling, it, it's the way that elites treat the average American citizen, either, either sometimes directly and intentionally, sometimes it's just a message that's sent, you know? So I was thinking this last week about the, you know, the, the trucker caravan in Canada and, you know, really remarkable just as a, a physical thing, right? All, all these truckers making their way to, to Ottawa and, and uh, Justin Trudeau's response, kind of the, the, the money line, was this is a small fringe that holds unacceptable views. You know, unacceptable views. That, that, that's a really strong word, right? When you think about it, it it's a polite word in a way, right? It's, it's not, um, you know, offensive in certain ways, but unacceptable. You, you, you may not hold those views. 
And there's a certain contempt there that's just embedded in that language. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what all their views are. And, and sounds like there was some manifesto that was a little far out there for some of them. And, you know, there's a lot of truckers coming for a lot of different reasons, but, but they're coming primarily because their livelihood is endangered by, by a vaccine mandate. And they're responding to that. And, you know, they may not be the most sophisticated political operators, but to call them a small fringe with unacceptable views is, is not to make any room for a kind of a recognition, like you were saying a moment ago, of, of maybe a, a legitimate concern on their part, right? And, and not just a concern for them individually, but no small thing when a significant part of your you know, delivery system for moving goods and moving food and all the other things that, that truckers do is, is potentially at risk. You know, you, you fire 15% of, of the truckers, you've got a problem. Now, the other thing I was thinking about was, was the, the, the latest controversy involving um, Governor Gavin Newsom. You know, the last Sunday, of course, he was at the, the game there in, in L.A. As, as the Rams were going to the Super Bowl. And uh, there's this picture that he took with Magic Johnson where neither of them is masked. And, you know, you remember the, the problems he had about a year ago with this and dining in that fancy restaurant unmasked and had to apologize for that. And that was really leading into the recall effort that, that ultimately failed. But, but again, the, the language he used in justifying this was very interesting. He, he called uh, his behavior very judicious. He says, you'll see in the photo that I did take where Magic was kind enough, generous enough to ask me for a photograph. And in my left hands, the mask. And I took a photo, he said. The rest of the time I wore it, as, as we all should, not when I had a glass of water. I, I encourage everybody else to do so, and that's it. Uh, and then he goes on and says, I was trying to be gracious. I made a miss. I was trying to be gracious. So he, he almost said he made a mistake, but he caught himself and went back to, I, I was being gracious. Hey, look, I don't know, Dave, whenever Magic asks you for a photograph, you know, you've got to feel obliged, don't you, to take the mask off and you don't want to ruin Magic's photograph. So, yeah, I mean, I get it, right? You know, when, if I were in that situation, um, I'd, I'd want to be judicious too and maybe take my mask off. And, and you just wonder if, if there's room for others to be judicious or if it's only governors who are uh, in a photo op with Magic Johnson who get to make that kind of judgment. Well, you'd mentioned the need for magnanimity uh, in, in these situations, but I think it goes back to even a, perhaps a more core virtue, which is humility. Uh, which seems to be lacking, you know, both on the part of Trudeau uh, and and Newsom here, uh, and many other leaders of all different um, political persuasions. That that humility, where you're going to say, okay, actually, uh, you know, you're not catching yourself making a mistake. You're just you truly recognize that uh, you are fallen, um, you are imperfect, uh, you don't see things, you don't do the right thing. But it's it's hard, you know, for individuals that represent the administrative state who are requiring absolute. Uh, obedience, 100% perfection all the time, who always seem to have a reason as to why they don't have to do the same thing when it's a restaurant of their choosing, um, a haircut that they're having done, et cetera. The standard that applies to another never really applies to them uh, because I actually think that they believe that they are better than the people who they rule over. Yeah. And that's, you know, that, that's something that just comes off, right? You, you, you can, you can hide or you can mask that as it were, um, behind behind your rhetoric and justify the behavior but everybody gets the message right? yep. we, we, we all know that that the grace that you're giving to yourself is not a grace you're willing to extend to others which brings us back to Aristotle's point on equality <laughs> yep exactly yeah equality for me but not for thee well on that note we're going to transition to the grade book 
Uh, of course, we've been doing the crystal ball for a while, but unfortunately, our crystal ball broke um, last week after I went 0 and 4 on the divisional round picks, and you were 1 and 3. You got you got the Rams, but um, that was that was it. But so, I, I still could have my Super Bowl winner. I think I picked the Rams at the beginning of the season. So yeah, I you've got a chance. I, I don't want them to win, but I think <laughs> I want to continue my streak of um, was it Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, what was the second? The Braves. You had the Braves. Braves. Okay, so I, yeah. I think we've gone fifty percent up until this point on. And, and I hate to mention it, you know, to our NBA picks critic out there, but have you checked out the Lakers' record lately? Right, they're not even going to make it to five hundred at this point. So I think our, you know, our forty-four win, forty-six win predictions are looking pretty good um, in the face of of strident criticism by strident, by our listeners. Strident criticism. Unwarranted criticism. Un- unwarranted, as it turns out. Yeah, yeah. have confidence in Corbett. Lacking, lacking judiciousness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, we'll, we'll see if we can find the new crystal ball on eBay. Uh, you know, for next week, so we can make our Super Bowl picks. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to go back to the grade book, and uh, we got a couple of things we're going to grade today. So, in honor of Tom Brady's retirement, uh, I've picked out three of his seasons for the Patriots, and we'll grade those briefly. And then, of course, we want to grade the breaking news uh, this morning on Wednesday, uh, the Washington Commanders as, as the new name for the Washington football team uh, as, of, as of this coming uh, football season. So uh, 2001, Dave, remember 2001, uh, the year it all began, Drew Bledsoe gets hurt early on in the season. Tom Brady takes over, really a game manager at that point in his career, uh, but kicks all the way to the Super Bowl. And then that amazing drive, everybody thought, they were just going to play for overtime, and they, they marched down the field, set up Adam Benatieri's game-winning field goal, and it turns out that the dynasty has begun. Yeah, great year, great Super Bowl. I just I was in shock uh, at the time. And it, it, when you go back and you watch that game, it was a rather kind of average game by Brady in that season that he played. was you know a little better than average. right? You, like you said, he was a game manager. Uh, but it you know up until that final drive where you know he's kind of – dumping off passes to J.R. Redmond and on all rest. And there's not much going on there that he's kind of winning the game for you. Uh, but uh, I'd give him a B for that season. I, I think he was kind of, and I think everyone at that point said, wow, you know, we've won, but we would have never had guessed that this was someone who was going to start the Patriots dynasty. Yeah. Yeah. You, could, you couldn't see all that coming. And yet Belichick seemed to have some sense of it because, you know, Bledsoe, was was better right he, he was healed by the end of that season and he stuck with Brady which was really quite a bold move given that Bledsoe had been the number one pick in the draft not too many years before and taking him to the Super Bowl uh, earlier so that that was that was that moment of, of of genius by Belichick that that really had a profound impact on on the rest of the history of the franchise there all right well fast forward six years 2007 Spygate revenge to remember the first half of that season they just absolutely destroyed every team, and they were they were running it up right without without ever admitting it. Uh, they were trying to beat everybody by forty points. Of course, Brady has Randy Moss that year. Wes Welker going crazy as well. Fifty touchdown passes, sixteen and zero regular season, and then the Super Bowl. That's an A minus season. I mean, the minus only yeah. coming because of that um, crazy, you know, over the helmet, you know, catch. Uh, yeah. But just, yeah, that was so much fun to watch uh, every game until you got to the last three or four games of the season. 
Uh, they were blowouts. And even those last three or four games of the season, remember the late game against the Giants. Yeah. I just did. It, it, it's such a feeling for a team when you have someone like Randy Moss. So I kind of know how like the Bengals fans feel with Jamar Chase or whenever you have yeah. that kind of great wide out that is a game changer. So uh, I'd give that that season an A minus. Yeah, I agree. It, you know, what one question I think for Patriots fans is how many of the other Super Bowls would you trade? to get that perfect season, you mm-hmm. know, if, if how, how many would you give up in order to, to have that 19 and 0 on the books? I would have given up one, I think, just to have that 19 yeah. and 0 on the books. Okay. Maybe, okay. Maybe yeah. Not two though. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to then fast forward to the next revenge tour deflate gate revenge tour. After Brady is suspended for the first four games of the season, he comes back uh, 11 and one regular season record when he's quarterback, 28 touchdowns, only two interceptions, best interception rate of his career. And of course, the season ends with the incredible comeback against against Atlanta. Uh, what would you grade that season, Dave? A plus plus plus. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, an amazing Super Bowl. I mean, really, that whole season spoke to just how how great Brady had made himself as a player. He wasn't simply a game manager. He he had strengthened his arm. He, he had mastered the game. And you knew in that second half against Atlanta, I remember my family asking me, what do you think that the chances are? And like, well, they're going to have to do every play just right from here on out to win. And only with a Brady playing at the top of his game, could they have every play just right uh, and, and have that end. Uh, so that was, that was amazing. Yeah. He's 39 by that point. So, you know, this is, <laughs> he's, he's really at the end of his career by any normal standard. And yet there he was that incredible comeback. What a, what a cherry on top of, of a great season and a great you know, reaffirmation of, of the dynasty. Um, and of course, then another Super Bowl to come after that um, to, to get more. the six. Yeah. The six for the Patriots. Yeah. And then of course the, the Buccaneers for the yeah. seventh. So amazing. All right, last thing we're going to grade, the Washington Commanders, Dave. Uh, we, we looked at a couple summers ago, different options for Cleveland as they were talking about a new name and uh, Washington at that point as well. Uh, just, just finally announced, although it's been rumored for a while, Commanders is the name. What do you say? The irony of the anything in, in D.C. being called, you know, Commanders. I mean, I, I certainly think there's an attempt to command things, but... Uh, the command from DC hasn't really gone well. Ho- hopefully it goes better for the football club than it has for the last couple of administrations. Yeah. And as a son of a retired Navy commander, I have a certain amount of respect for the choice of the name. And I hope, you know, my dad will be able to get some free tickets, uh, show your credentials, you know, down there. And a lot of folks around Annapolis, not too far from Washington, DC, that might be thinking about that as well. Um, it's, it's a little, it's a little generic, honestly, right? I mean, it's it's safe. I'm sure they were looking for safe, uh, but it, it sort of feels like the Cleveland Guardians as well, where mm-hmm. you you kind of went for um, the low hanging fruit, and you know you'll your 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 fans will adjust, and people will you know, kind of accept this, and you know you won't make any more headlines around your team name anymore. Exactly. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget, you can always contact us at democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. 2020 vision.